Our scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 1, verses 20 to 31, and C.O. Gerlich is reading for us. So in honor of God's word, let's stand together. Listen as I read. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks demand wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we are starting a new series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of the Kingdom. And um, today is going to be a little weird uh, because it is an intro, and uh, we're going to try to to maybe address some things that I think swirl around uh, a book study. Um, and and then next week we'll actually you know, we'll start in Matthew chapter one uh, in in the first verses there. Um, and so, you know, on, on the first page of this, bo- of this book, you get uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit next week. But that word for genealogy is actually the word for Genesis. And so in the beginning, Genesis is basically how Matthew starts his, his gospel. And then at the end, the last verse, it says that Jesus will be with us to the end of the age. So in the beginning and the end of the age. And there's this, this invitation uh, that, that Matthew gives us on every page, in every chapter. But he's telling us with the beginning phrase and the end phrase that th- this, th- this whole story, this whole thing, it's all about, it's all about Christ. And so as we study Matthew, that, that's our hope. Is this whole thing hangs on Jesus, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And, uh, and as we get to explore this gospel, I hope you get to see uh, Jesus more, more clearly. So let's start off with some background. Um, th- this gospel was written somewhere 30 to 50 years after Jesus' death. But I think it's important to recognize that there is very good reason to believe that he did not wait 30 to 50 years, that Matthew did not wait 30 to 50 years to write it. I think the better way to understand this is it took him 30 to 50 years to write it. Uh, One scholar says that this gospel is Matthew's life, it's his life's work, and it is rightly and widely considered a masterpiece it's one of the four Gospels. It is, it, is, it is a biography. I mean, you could look at this and say, is this a biography? Well, yes, 
Uh, it's, it's a biography, but it is, it is so much more than that. Matthew's goal is not just to recount Jesus' life or to cause us to admire this figure. You know, that I, I like, I like um, memoirs. I like uh, biographies. I enjoy reading them. I'm, I'm reading uh, U2's, uh, Bono's, uh, the memoir that he just came out with called Surrender. And I, I, I love hearing how people's stories unfold. And, and as, as, as memoirs or bi- uh, bi- biographies are written, Often the author, whether it's themselves or someone else writing on their behalf, like you, you end up admiring them. But Matthew is after something way more than just admiring Jesus. Matthew's goal is for us to worship Jesus, to worship him as king, and to follow him as disciples. So you, you, maybe you saw on that first slide just that little subtitle, The Gospel of the Kingdom. That Matthew is, is giving a lot of time and attention to this concept of Jesus as king and the fact that there is a kingdom that he is king over. And it, it just it saturates what Matthew writes. And so as he communicates to us who this Jesus is, he doesn't want us to just know who he is. He doesn't want us to just admire him. He wants us to worship him and to worship him as king and to follow him with everything we got. Well, what does he do over these 28 chapters? There's 20, 28 chapters. It's, uh, it has the, the most chapters of any of the four Gospels. I think Luke is a bigger Gospel total verses, but Matthew's one of the bigger ones. And over these 28 chapters, uh, Matthew is, is he's trying to accomplish some things. But I think maybe actually trying to turn a little bit of an eye to who Matthew is might, might help us think about this a little bit. So if you have your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13... It's about halfway. Uh, Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus, in Ch- Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is doing tons of parables, all kinds of parables. And when he gets to verse 51, he says, have you understood all these things? You get what I'm saying? And, you know, the answer is no. No, no they don't. No, we don't. We're still trying to figure this out. But he says, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Um, and, and he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Now, what, what, what's going on here? He says it's like a, anyone, a scribe who's been trained um, for the kingdom. So it's, he's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasures, new and old. Well, so, some Bible scholars think that Jesus was looking at Matthew when he said this. That he was actually looking at Matthew, who was, had, had the skills of a scribe. And whether or not he was looking at Matthew, it doesn't really matter, but it's exactly what Matthew does. In, in these verses, what Jesus says is he says it's like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Ma- Matthew is significantly pulling out both new and old treasures. But from where? From the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus talks about him in his work of fulfilling the law, he says here, this, there's this work of going in and out of the treasure, like pu- pulling out the treasures that are new and pulling out the treasures that are old and like revealing them for what they are. 
And this, this inference from Jesus is that they're doing it from the Old Testament. And so as we read through the book of Matthew together, slowly, over the course of months and years, and we get to see what Matthew is doing, you're going to see, and hopefully we can do this in a faithful way, that Matthew is just constantly looking back to the Old Testament. We'll see more about this next week, but Matthew wants us to see connections with Jesus to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the Messiah, from the Old Testament. Uh, Bible scholars identify 55 passages in Matthew's 28 chapters, 55 passages that are considered quotations. So that means that the way that Matthew wrote that is, is close enough to the Hebrew to where he is intending to quote the Old Testament 55 times. There's only 65 Old Testament quotations in the other three Gospels combined. 55 just in Matthew. It's almost two per chapter on average. He's quoting the Old Testament all the time. And then you add to that all the allusions to the Old Testament, all the times where he just references it or, or gives the, the, the sense of it, echoes it. And those are almost more than you could count. One, one scholar, Craig, uh, Craig Blomberg, you know, he, he, he says that it's twice as often as Mark, Luke, and John, that Matthew is constantly deferring and referring to the Old Testament, he wants us to make the connections, to pull the treasures out of the Old Testament, new and old. So some of what Matthew does is he takes the Old Testament and he holds it up and he's like, this is an old treasure. You guys know about this treasure, but isn't it good? Like, isn't that good? And then other times he pulls out a treasure and he's like, maybe you've seen this before, but guess what? You didn't see it clearly. You, you didn't see it as in its fullness. This is actually talking about this person this Christ, this Jesus. And so Matthew is pulling out the treasures, new and old. Uh, Matthew was an, an educated Jew. Uh, he, he worked uh, as a tax collector, but the indications are that he was an educated Jew, and yet he had taken like the slimiest job that you could take in that culture as a Jewish person. But it doesn't change the fact that he would have probably been one of the most educated of the 12 disciples. And, and Matthew writes uh, this, this detailed masterpiece. He, he, he functions as this scribe where he takes the details. He pulls back the curtain. He gives us a view of Jesus and what it was like for them to walk with Jesus and to hear Jesus speak in public, for, to hear Jesus talk in private. Matthew is clearly and intentionally making the case that Jesus is worth everything that he's worth our time, our money, our devotion. And not only that, but that he's worth giving up everything and giving up anything. The, the parables that Jesus shares, that Matthew records, are often inviting us into this recognition that there's nothing that you could give up, that losing that would be, would be, would be some sort of a loss in the end. It's actually give, giving that up makes all the sense if you get Christ. That Christ is, is better than anything that you could compare him to. It's worth giving it all up. Matthew, like the other gospel writers, gives a call to radical discipleship. An all-in kind of engagement with Jesus. Now, Matthew was a tax collector. I said that a minute ago. That means that by his fellow Jewish people, he was hated. He was at the bottom of the barrel. He was considered a traitor. And usually, uh, this, line, this line of work had very little oversight, and they made a ton of money. 
They, they were paid decent by Rome, but they also had the freedom to gouge their fellow Jewish people by charging more than they should. And so the majority of tax collectors are extremely wealthy people. But his wealth was off the backs of his fellow Jews. Not just what Rome was doing to the Jewish people, but then what Matthew himself was carving out for himself. So in a, a hated profession, and Matthew was serving in that role, was working in that place. He was working for the oppressor of, Jew, of the Jewish people. He was working for Rome. And what happens? Well, the accounts that we have with Jesus interacting with Matthew is it's really, really simple. Jesus basically looks at Matthew and says, follow me. And that's exactly what Matthew does. Jesus says, follow me. And the indications are that, that Matthew got up from his tax collecting table and, and went with Jesus. He just stopped doing what he was doing and started doing what Jesus was doing. Jesus said, follow me. And it's exactly what Matthew did. It's intense. It's radical. You know, in the book Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, uh, in, in, in the chapter, I think it's titled, Is Christianity Hard or Easy? That's towards the end of the, end of the book. There, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis, and he says this, The terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions, to Christ. But it is far easier than what we are all trying to do instead. And he goes on to say, what we're trying to do, here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to stay in control of our life. We're trying to pursue our version of happiness. We're trying to keep our own priorities and our own desires, and then somehow kind of stay good with Jesus. Kind of keep things, you know, even keel with Jesus. We're, we're trying to live a, a, a moral life. We're trying to, like, not do the wrong things. And C.S. Lewis says it, it, that, that, like, you might think, like, you're, you're, this is working. It's, it's not working. It's, he's recognizing, and I appreciate C.S. Lewis's honesty here, the terrible thing, the almost impossible thing, is to hand over your whole self to Jesus. It's exactly what Matthew does, and it's exactly what Matthew calls us to, page after page, as we walk through this gospel, and we see the person and work of Jesus. We're trying to hold on to our own lives. We're trying to hold on to our own vision for the future, our own definition of happiness. And Matthew is telling us, you think that's going to work? It's not going to work. It's like being half in, half out. It's like being lukewarm for Jesus. It won't work. When Jesus calls, he, he asks for every square inch of us. So Matthew is telling us as an eyewitness that Jesus is everything he said he was and more. When Jesus looked at Matthew and said, follow me, it's exactly what Matthew did. And I think there's a beautiful lesson to be held on to here throughout this study, that Jesus treats Matthew just like he treats everybody else. He does not look down on Matthew for being a tax collector. He doesn't think of him as a lost cause. He sees him as one in need of a savior one in need of a shepherd, one in need of a king. Maybe a way to think about it is this. Who Matthew was was not a deal breaker to Jesus. All of his mess is not a deal breaker to Jesus. And so by, 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 you know, we, we can put ourselves in that seat. Listen, who you are right now is not a deal breaker for Jesus. 
Your backstory, your current story, how you've come to be where you are at, some of that might be pretty muddy. Some of that might be pretty dirty. It might be pretty slimy. Every one of us has brokenness in our stories, and they're not deal breakers. Jesus wants you. He wants the you that you are right now. And at the same time, he loves you so much that he wants to walk with you and work in you so that you grow more and more like him, actually into the person that you were created to be, the real you. You you know that, right? The, The you that's chasing Jesus, the you that's been fully transformed by Jesus, that's the real you. That's the you that you were created to be. And Jesus wants to see that unfold. As we said a few minutes ago, degree by degree, little by little, he is at work in the world, and he wants to be at work in you. It's what he did to Matthew. It's what he's been doing to millions of lives over the last 2,000 years, and it's what he wants to do in you right now. So why are we taking this kind of time to go through the, the, the study of Matthew? Um, we'll try to move quickly through this, but I do at least want to give an eye towards like, the Bible itself, towards this idea of Scripture, because I think it's true that we have <clears throat> a problem with the Bible. I think that if we were to try to do some polling data, I'd, you know, if we said, how many people in this room <clears throat> read their Bible every day? Um, my guess would be that that number is relatively low. If we were to say how many people in this room have read the entire Bible from cover to cover, I'm I'm, I'm assuming that that number might be pretty low. And so I want to think about this, and I want to be honest about this. It is a little crazy to say that you base your life on a book that you actually haven't read, or that you haven't read all the way through, or that you haven't read much. That, that, that can seem, if you put those pieces together, it might be why you're hesitant. If you haven't invested in the scriptures and someone says to you, Jesus asks for every square inch of you, you're basing your life on this book that you know very little about. You know, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It's the best-selling book of every year. It sells like 25 million copies, uh, like every year. But one writer recently called it, it's the best-selling book never read. How many copies do we have? I mean, many of us in this room have like many copies of the Bible. And then we live in a moment that's incredible. We have it digitally. We can have it with us any time of the day. It's so accessible, and yet we don't access it. If we're honest, if we took the time and did the poll, you know, some of us in this room would admit, like, I don't understand it. Some in this room might say they don't want to. Some might say and actually admit that they don't like it. I don't like the Bible. Maybe you're in that camp that's kind of a growing camp in our culture, which is, I like Jesus, but I don't really like the Bible. Well, yes, it's a complicated book, but I believe, and this church believes, that it is a book worth investing in. If you turn over a couple pages back in Matthew to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something pretty amazing about the scriptures. He looks at his followers and he says, do you think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? This is Matthew Matthew 5, verse 17. Do you think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets? 
I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, or not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Do, do you get what Jesus is talking about? Now, now, Jesus is looking at the Old Testament here, the Hebrew Bible, but he, he could not have a higher view. He is not messing around with Scripture at all. He says, there's not one line of it that I want you to take out. There's not one line of it that I want you to ignore. There's not a single command that you have the right to teach is not true, to teach is not, as not valid, not one. He says, and if you do that, you'll be the least of all in the kingdom. But if you'll hold on to this, if you'll teach it, if you'll teach it to yourself and teach it to others, you will be called great in the kingdom of God. I mean, Jesus has an incredibly high view of Scripture. And there's a, 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 a logic that, 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 that unfolds in regard to this doctrine of the Bible that Jesus later affirms his own words as words that we need to hold on to. And then there's this recognition that Jesus did not expect the story to end with him. Jesus actually says, it's good that I go so that the Spirit comes and that this, that, that my, that, that this message of the gospel spreads around the globe. And so God in his grace not only gives us Jesus' words, but he gives us the account of Jesus' life, and then he gives us these apostles who then flesh out the teaching of Jesus in real time in local churches. And that comprises these 66 books that we call the Bible. And over the course of the last 2,000 years, the church has had an incredibly high view of the scriptures. We've recognized them as the word of God. We have the audacity to call this book the word of God, and we think it is worth investigating. Multiple steps to trying to understand it, things like observation, interpretation, application. And yeah, th th those things, those things it's hard work. And we're going to do some of that hard work when we gather here on Sunday mornings. But, you know, over the last couple months, I've gotten involved in, in doing CrossFit. And if you know what CrossFit is, it's like kind of a multidiscipline uh, exercise. Uh, and it's, you know, weightlifting and cardio and a whole, whole bunch of different things. And I go to class almost every day, every weekday. And I go early in the morning. And, you know, as I've done it for a couple months now, I've quickly realized that that class is great. But if all I do with CrossFit is that one-hour class five times a week or four times a week, it's, it's not going to work out. Like wh what I eat, the, 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 the nutrition that I care about in between classes, when I go to bed, when I wake up, what, what, what I'm doing with the rest of my life, what I'm doing with the rest of my week impacts my fitness level. And I could look at CrossFit and blame CrossFit for my lack of progress. Or I could recognize that CrossFit is, is, is an opportunity. It's, it's a space that I kind of get to maybe have some level of intensity, but, but the rest of my life is actually a, as, as big a factor. And sometimes I think the way that we treat our church is that we come in here one hour a week and we think that somehow this one hour is going to overcome all the other decisions and all the other things that we choose to do with our hearts and with our minds and with our time. Uh, in between the Sunday services. And that's not how Jesus is inviting us to interact with him. He's inviting us to interact with him all the time in every way. 
And so as we walk through the Gospel of Matthew, I want to suggest that we have to be willing to read it. And I'm also suggesting that we have to be willing to wrestle with it. That there may be things that you assume you know about various passages in these Gospels that God might want to to shake you up with. This has happened every time we've gone through a book of the Bible. There are incredibly common passages. And as we hold them up to the light, God in his grace wants to show us something new or something different or something richer or to reveal the fact that the way we understood it in the first place wasn't actually right. We are trying to interpret the words of God, and that is a journey, and it takes a lot of work, and it takes a humble heart, and it takes a commitment level, and we want to walk that way. I have more I want to say about this, but we are, um, we're running out of time. So there's a quote from Andrew Wilson. There's a little book on our book wall called Unbreakable, uh, written by Andrew Wilson. It's real, real little, but he makes such beautiful case for the value and the importance of the scriptures. Um, But he says this, Our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't believe in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. There's, a, there's a, a, a guy who's started a, a significant prayer movement. His name's Peter Grieg. And, and, and Peter Grieg had this statement uh, a, a couple years ago, I guess it was. And this is what he said. Can I be honest with you? I'm actually not that into prayer. I'm into Jesus, so we talk. I don't believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of God. So I ask for his help a lot. He says, I'm not into evangelism. I actually hate evangelism. I'm into Jesus, so I talk to people about Jesus. I'm not into social justice. I'm into Jesus, so I find myself picking fights with his enemies. I'm not into worship. All those soft rock songs over and over again, I'm into Jesus. So when I see him, I smile and I bow, and yeah, I do, sing sometimes. I'm, I'm not into church. Have you seen the state of it? I'm into Jesus, so I like his people. They're all a little weird, but so am I. His point is that the vision is Jesus. And so as you pick up your Bible, we we, we actually are are rooting ourselves in the fact that Jesus is the one who said that this book is worth our time. That Jesus' affirmation of the truth and the significance of this book that make us want to pursue it. And so we look to Jesus, and as Jesus said in Matthew 28, at the end of this gospel, he says, all authority has been given to me. He's the authority. And if we're going to follow Jesus, that means he's our boss. He's our master is the term that the Bible often uses. And so we want to turn to these scriptures that he says should rule our lives as they reveal to us who he is. We want to lean into what the Bible says and actually have the audacity to believe it and do it. One last quick thought. Um, and this is uh, the, the passage that we, that we read for our scripture reading today. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 20 through 31. This is obviously written by a different author. Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Paul wrote this letter to a church in, in the city of Corinth. But what happens in those verses that you heard C.O. read a little bit ago um, is, is this recognition that the audience 
that is receiving this news of the gospel is, 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 is often, in, in the first century, it's often made up of these two groups, groups of Jews and groups of Greeks, especially in, in the Corinth setting. And as Paul writes to them, he says, let, let me talk to you about what the gospel is doing, what the message of the gospel is doing to these two prominent groups of people, to the Jews and to the, to the Greeks. He says, the Jews, here's the situation of the Jews. They're oppressed. They're under the authority of Rome, and they want to be back on top. They are waiting for this Messiah that they have invented or that they've, that they've kind of created, and this Messiah is going to come and put them back on the map, going to give them power. So when the Jews look to this message, what do they want? They want a message of power. They want a message that's going to, that's going to rock the world. They want power. Well, what were the Greeks into? The Greeks were into philosophy. The Greeks were into wisdom. And so when the Greeks run into this message about Jesus, what do they want to do? They, they want to find wisdom. They, they want to find philosophical wisdom. And so they come to Jesus, and they have their own priorities. They have their own initiatives. And they come, and they just want to mine Jesus for wisdom. The Jews want to use him for power. The Greeks want to use him for wisdom. And Paul says, that's not what's going to happen here. He, he actually says, God's doing something that, that doesn't fit in the categories. He actually is bringing weakness. And what he says sometimes sounds so foolish. You look at it, you're like, that is never going to work. If I turn the other cheek, I'm going to get hit a second time. That's not a good idea. And so the Greeks want, or the Jews want power, and Jesus brings this, this humble weakness, this meekness. The Greeks want wisdom, and what Jesus says and what his followers say often sounds foolish. And then you actually look at Jesus' followers. I mean, look around. We often look foolish. We often look weak. Some of it's our own doing, and some of it is we're trying to obey Jesus. And we can look like fools. We can look weak. And yet Paul says, guess what? We're not trying to fit in those categories. And Jesus isn't trying to fit in our categories. He's doing something new. He's doing something different. And so Paul says, you know what we're doing? We're committed to preaching Christ. We're not trying to mine him for the things that we want out of him. We're actually trying to preach him. We're actually presenting him. And we want him to reorient us. You know, the word glory means heavy or weighty. And there's a sense in which the glory of God, it's the heaviest thing that you've ever run into. You don't move it, it moves you. And when, and when Paul talks about Jesus, he actually says that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ is the centerpiece. He's the weightiest thing. We don't move him around like a pawn. He moves us around. And it's beautiful, it's not as a pawn, it's as his children. It's as his friends. It's true. It's all true. And that's what Matthew wants us to grab onto, is that this message is worth it, that this person is worth it. He wants us to take a look behind the scenes. He invites us in as an eyewitness. And so as Paul says, when Jesus became the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then in verse 31, he says, so let's not boast in ourselves. Let's boast in Christ. 
What we're trying to do here is not mind Jesus for the little parts of him that we think might work with our self-salvation project. We're actually trying to let him mold us. We're actually trying to preach Christ and boast in Christ. But man, you have got to know him. You've got to meet him. And that is exactly what Matthew wants us to do, to come and see him on the pages of this gospel account. We're going to go to the table. And as we come to the table, man, this bread represents the body of Jesus. This juice represents the blood of Jesus. This is all about him. This is a meal that makes sense if you're a follower of his to come and remember again that he changed everything when he came and lived and died and rose again that we might be made right with God. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, we thank you for this, this good news. We thank you for this gospel. And in this case, it's a gospel written by uh, one of Jesus' followers, Matthew. It's 28 chapters that are going to invite us into the whole journey with Jesus, from his ministry going public to his resurrection from the dead, to his commissioning of his people. God, as we walk through all these different encounters, these different conversations, some of them are going to leave us scratching our head. We admit that. Some of these things are going to seem so weak. Some of these things are going to seem so foolish. But God, would you help us to have the humility of heart to wrestle with these passages, to ask the hard questions about what is Jesus inviting us into? What does Jesus mean by that? Who is this Jesus? God, so often the disciples were confused. We, we, we're in good company. God, would you, would you help us to not quit, to not give up? but to keep chasing after this one true king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.